Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The concept for the podcast, There Goes the Neighborhood, predated my joining the station. So when I joined um, and they asked me this, to work on this, they said that we'd love for you to work on this project. I really audibly groaned about it because I just felt like gentrification in Brooklyn had, had gotten to a place where nobody, it's like diversity. Like you can't, there's nothing to say. It doesn't have any meaning anymore. So the real challenge was to find what's interesting about it, to find something, some way to talk about it um, that felt fresh. When There Goes the Neighborhood launched in 2016, The Guardian called it compelling and resonant. More recently, producer Rebecca Carroll teamed up with KCRW on There Goes the Neighborhood Los Angeles. Both documentary series report on the players driving gentrification and on the people being displaced by it. I am Sarah Gonzalez, and this is Work It, the podcast. It's a compilation of some of the best moments from the live event. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming uh, and listening to us talk about our work and our um, podcast. This one is uh, about There Goes the Neighborhood, uh, New York and L.A. I had the very good fortune of working on the first, uh, the original, sorry, <laughs> um, New York. And so, the, as, I, as, as I have said, the idea, the concept for the podcast, There Goes the Neighborhood, predated my joining the station. Uh, there had been some talk about doing a podcast on gentrification. So when I joined um, and they asked me this, to work on this, they said that we'd love for you to work on this project, I really audibly groaned about it because I just felt like gentrification in Brooklyn had, had gotten to a place where nobody, it's like diversity, like you can't, there's nothing to say, it doesn't have any meaning anymore. So the real challenge was to find what's interesting about it, to find something, some way to talk about it um, that felt fresh, that felt um, really creative and, and original. And so as with really any sort of medium that wants to tell a story, it's all about the characters. Um, and mm -hmm. so we, you know, a small team, we went out, we set out to find folks, um, and then we, we became, they became part of us and we became part of them. Um, so I'm going to play a few clips for you. This first one is, is the, is the interview, the reporting that really turned it for me. Um, and I sort of realized in this conversation with this woman, what it was about, what gentrification was about for me. You know what's interesting? The other day I was walking in my neighborhood and I saw a black elderly gentleman that I hadn't seen in a couple months and he literally, his eyes flew open and he said, oh, you're still here. And I went, yeah, and you're still here. Things have changed, haven't they? And we were like, yeah, black folks are disappearing. So myself um, and our host, Kai Wright, and our um, brilliant uh, editor, Karen Frillman, who also works with these guys on L.A., um, and a couple of other folks, D.W. and Jim, um, who reported in the newsroom, sat down and just sort of 
asked ourselves what it meant to us. And for me, it, it was and has always been about race. Um, and, you know, this predated Trump. And so now that everybody's talking about it, it's, it's, it's good. But, you know, I, I, there was some pushback from our team. Like, it's not just about race. It's about class and money and economy and this and that, but which is also always about race. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so it's interesting now looking back on some of those early conversations, um, uh, but also quite gratifying that uh, that we were able to, I think, through the characters and through the reporting, uh, have it be not just, um, you know, not just hitting people over the head about that. Um, this is one of our cherished characters who is actually now my neighbor um, <laughs> because both Kai and I, during the process of, of making this podcast, got kicked out of our, our apartments for gentrification reasons. So I moved to Bed-Stuy and he moved to East New York, which I, do, I don't know if you have, you don't have anything of that from Kai. We don't. Yeah, yeah I have that. Um, so this is, uh, this is Monica Bailey. So I told him, I said, this is the deal. I'm not moving. He said, well, I came to offer you some money. If you move <laughs> by this certain amount of time, I'm gonna give you $5,000. I said, you are out of your mind. You have felt and bumped your head. <laughs> So obviously, Monica is one of the one of those characters where she just drove really pretty much the whole thing, um, and you know we just wanted to spend time with her. We want you know, and I think that that's a really important thing with podcast making is finding characters who are themselves and who you you create an atmosphere where they can be themselves and really have the agency to tell their own stories. Um, Monica's story was intense. If you all have listened to There Goes the Neighborhood. But she is um, vibrant and well and still in the neighborhood. Um, and then this last character is, uh, is Joshua from East New York. So what did that room cost? He's a good friend of our family and my sister actually um, rents out an apartment from him as well. That was about four or five years ago, but he charged me five hundred dollars a month. That's the that's the cheapest you're gonna get it. Yeah, that's the cheapest. And you know, I'm I'm lucky because you know, that's why I don't leave the neighborhood. I leave the neighborhood. I'm never gonna get any prices like that. I'm well known. I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm well known with all the um, bad history that I could state that I have had in these streets. I got good history. I didn't just all there all bad. When I sold drugs, I sold drugs and I gave back to my neighborhood. That's what we do. We take care of ours. So ours can take care of us. I forgot, I have one more clip just for a little levity. Um, uh, I have, was living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn at the time, um, uh, podcast, which is sort of ground zero for Brooklyn gentrification. Um, although we lived mostly in the... Um, Puerto Rican uh, East New York, East Williamsburg part. So, but I went to sort of the main um, freeway, the hyper freeway, uh, which is Bedford Avenue. Um, just sort of walking around and sort of waiting to find people to talk to. And this black guy comes uh, down the sidewalk, and I stopped him. And and uh, this is <laughs> this was our interaction. So you said you moved here. Yeah. For the diversity. Yeah. So you feel like when you walk the sidewalks, you see diversity. Yeah. Where do you get your haircut? Oh, I get it in the hood. They don't cut hair over here. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> um, so then uh, these lovely folks um, at KCRW reached out 
to us and with and said it's happening here too. I mean, uh, we heard from a lot of cities and a lot of people saying it's happening. And it, of course it is. It's happening in every major city and it's not new. Um, places where black and brown folks have lived throughout history, when it becomes desirable to white folks, they move in and push black and brown folks out. Um, you know, the, where, where the political culture is or the climate is or, or the economy is, you know, that factors in, of course, but ultimately it's about agency, who has it, who doesn't. So I'm going to hand it over to Celeste. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about how the project came to be in L.A., which is that um, um, our managing editor, Sonia Geis, um, called Karen and spoke to Jim Schachter at a conference and just said over and over and over again, we want to do this. We want to do it here in L.A. We really, really, really want to do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think New York was very concerned. Are you gonna, is it going to be as good as what we did? <laughs> you didn't get the right kind of people, ask the right questions. Um, you know, it's the, the stories in some ways are similar, but the characters will be are different and... Um, you know, so, so that's how it came to be in L.A. Sonia fought for it. <laughs> and we're very fortunate, I think, to be the ones who are working on it. Yeah, um, I'm Anna Scott, one of the reporters on the L.A. season. Um, there's two other, I have two co-workers who've been reporting it as well, Saul Gonzalez and Miguel Contreras, who aren't here because they're men. Um, <laughs> Ew. But, yeah, I was a huge fan of season one. Um, just loved it, and it, and I cover housing and homelessness uh, at KCRW, so it was just right up my alley. So when Sonia told me that we were going to partner with WNYC for season two and asked if I wanted to report on it, it was pretty much a dream job for mm -hmm. six months. Um, and, you know, a lot to live up to, to be as nuanced and, um, and layered as season one was. So, um, so yeah, we just, the, our little three-person team just went out into the world and started going to tenants' union meetings and um, rallies and city hall hearings. And just, I mean, this topic is, is on everyone's minds, it seems, in L.A., you know, as much as in New York. And so no shortage of things to go to. And um, one of the first places that we ended up on is this building um, in the neighborhood Rampart Village on Robinson Street. I went to a, a meeting of... It was like a housing department meeting that some tenants had asked for in different buildings to lodge complaints and met this man named Uber Santa Cruz. And he just started telling me about this situation with his building that had been recently taken over by a new landlord and there was pressure on the tenants to leave. And it sounded interesting. So he is the first person that I started following around. And we have a little tape of him. There's no way we could find even a room. Even a single room. You can't even find a single room. You know, we take it for granted, but you, you know, I can look at the city, the whole city, from from my window, and it's really beautiful. That's removing a, a great chunk of me if you take me from here. This is it's my city. So Uber, uh, as he was saying that, we were sitting at his kitchen table, and he's you know looking out this little tiny window that's like this big, but he just loves that apartment and loves this view that he has of downtown and city. And I mean, his ties in this building are incredibly deep. His wife grew up there. She's lived there for more than 30 years. His mother-in-law lives next door. Sister-in-law lives next door. Um, 
he'd lived there for 27 years and pretty much the whole building had stories like that. I, almost everyone in it was, is, is uh, a Central American immigrant and most of them had been there for decades. Um, so Uber was just this incredibly lucky find. I just happened to meet him and he was willing to talk to me and kind of bring me into what was going on in the building. And, you know, I mean, you just sometimes know a wonderful character. The second that you meet them, they're just open and, um, you know, in an interesting situation. And it turned out we got lucky again because his landlord was equally interesting can I, <laughs> and can equally I just, a character. Can I just add yeah. to a note to that idea of luckiness? I mean, so much, if you're in journalism at all, is, and is about luck and finding the right people. Um, and we had actually started, one of the ideas that we had was that we would find a family or, you know, follow the sort of um, serial kind of uh, buildup. But we didn't have like a family or a dead body. You know what I mean? Like we didn't have the, the, the actual tool to thread it through. Um, and so when we found Monica, that was great, and Joshua, but it, but it, it definitely, you can start by thinking it's going to go one way, um, and then yes. it just doesn't. Totally. And in this case, I thought, okay, well, you know, we have these tenants who are, so, you know, op- opening up to us, but what are the chances that the landlord is really going to want to talk about this? Because, you know, he is in this to make money. This building was the rents are very, very below market. It's rent controlled. People have there, lived there a long time. Uh, and he wants everybody out so he can raise the rents and renovate the building and, you know, attract higher paying tenants. And so uh, he was doing everything in his power to make that happen. Um, and I thought he's not going to want to talk about that. But looked him up online, <laughs> called him up. First time I called him up on the phone within two minutes, he was like, oh, yeah, I'll talk to you. I'll tell you about that building. You know, there's two sides to every story. And people resent me because I'm white and, you know, I'm coming in and they think I'm this rich guy and this and this and that, like just right into it. Like talking, you know, I was like, okay, this is also incredibly lucky. And, you know, um, and, and he was also very open with us. He is uh, an investor who is also a real estate agent who had done a lot of uh, selling of buildings and properties as an agent in Echo Park. So um, anyway, just to give you a little sense of what David is like, we have this tape. I have sold more properties in Echo Park than anyone else. And on Echo Park Avenue, I've just crushed it. I have sold so many apartment buildings. <laughs> he said crushed it. <laughs> yeah. He so said crushed it. You know, it was just this wonderful contrast to between Uber and David. I mean, Uber, Uber is like... It's, it's, yeah, it these are people's lives. Because it was... Yeah, because both of them have such huge stakes in what happens with the building. And I think that, you know, the characters have to have stake a stake in the game or it doesn't, then they can carry, whoops, they can carry the story forward. Anna doesn't have to write everything. They, they reveal so much of themselves and how they both talk. They were just, oh, when I first heard them, I was just, you know, yeah. oh my God, this is so much fun. Totally. And personality wise, <laughs> they're pretty different. I mean, Uber is pretty soft-spoken um, and David is not. Uh, but you know, when those guys got on a collision course, <clears throat> they were equally aggressive. And um, um, there was something else I was going to add, but just kind of flew out of my head. But um, but anyways, uh, speaking of collision course that they were on, we have some tape of them going back and forth to kind of get a sense of how they felt about each other and this situation. <laughs> Where I have tenants that would love to move out. They say, I would, I would do it, but Uber won't let me. It's political. The guy just flat out one day asked me, man, how much is it going to take? 
What do you want? 40, 50, 60 grand? You want $100,000 Uber? And I finally just blew my top and I said, man, you know, it's not about your money. Many of the tenants don't even like each other in the building. So to think that this is like a beautifully functioning building with like super tight knit relationships that if you move these people even temporarily, they would just like perish is not the reality. So Uber and David, and they do both um, to what um, these ladies were talking about. They, they both do have really high stakes here. Obviously for Uber and his family and the other tenants, this is about having a roof over their heads. This is about where they live and you know the connections that they feel to their neighborhood and their community. Um, for David, it's a huge financial risk that he's taken on here. Um, we found out that he had a short-term loan to buy the property that he had to pay back in a couple years. For He bought it for a little more than a million dollars and um, took out a loan for $800,000 that he had a couple years to pay back. And for the rest of the money, he, had, he brought investors in. He had 14 investors, which is a lot of people for a deal like this. I mean, a million-dollar property in Los Angeles is, not, is actually kind of small potatoes and have 14 people that he had promised some kind of return to. He wouldn't tell us what, but, um, you know, that's, that's a risk. So he needed to increase the value of the property, needed to get the tenants out, and they were determined to stay. And so far they have. And they are um, there. <laughs> they're there. Um, they got lawyers. Uh, they filed their own. He started filing evictions at a certain point. Um, they fought back with their attorneys. They filed their own lawsuit against him. I mean, and, and ultimately he dropped most of the eviction cases. Um, but you should listen to the episode to hear all of it. Yes, there's much more to it, but we want to get to your questions. So it won't go. And yeah, probably and just, some of you've heard it, but just, uh, you know, to sort of say one other thing about this is that this makes it sound like this story landed in our laps. And that like a day or two later, we would have a script, you know, and it just took how many versions, Anna, you were counting at one yeah. point. I mean, a lot. there were many, <laughs> many, many versions. And, you know, I think that uh, that first of all, I think that, in fact, when you're doing long form, you almost always do many, many, many versions. I mean, you just keep throwing stuff out, adding stuff in, changing it, moving it, and eventually you, you get the story you wish, you somehow think you surely should have been able to do from the beginning. Um, but I think there were a couple of things that, um, you know, we really, it really was part of the process that, that can be helpful if you're doing this kind of podcast. We had a lot of, there would be some complicated process that was part of the eviction. And in fact, there was something called the THP. And it started The Tenant with, Habitability Plan. Yes, and we, it, it became a chunk of the story because it felt like, well, if we're going to mention it, we have to explain it, and to explain it, it's going to take a long time. And by the end, it became sort of a vague phrase. It, you know, we really had to lose it, but we had to write it a bunch of times before we understood we could, that we needed to lose it. Um, and the other thing I think we did at the beginning that we're maybe that we're about halfway through finishing and wrapping up is, is that um, there would be a great scene that we would have around a really important and cool piece of tape, like Elena in the cafeteria. Right. And by the time we ended, it was a quote. It was 20 seconds 
instead of a couple of minutes, that we, we created a scene for it that we didn't have to have. And sort of remember, oh, you don't always have to have a scene. Sometimes it's just the idea that needs to, to be there. And there were like a million little lessons like that that we learned again and again. I would add that if you're lucky enough to have a team, um, however small or big, that you should welcome and, and embrace and lean into um, disagreeing uh, about, about what is interesting and what is important because that makes it all the more so interesting and important. So Kai is, you know, super wonky and loves to get, like, drilled down into <laughs> history and, you know, uh, legalese and policy. And, and Karen is just wants to make something beautiful for your ears. And I, you know, really, I want to spend time with characters, but I also feel like every project that I work on, radio or otherwise, it's so deeply important for people to understand the, the role that race plays in mm -hmm. every conversation we have, in every corner of our culture, in every aspect and law, a whole, every sweet, every policy ever made in this country. So that, that was sort of my angle. And, and then, you know, Jim was just a great reporter and storyteller. So we all had things that were a priority. Um, and we didn't agree on everything, but it made it ultimately more interesting um, and more listenable. I also want to say it's really, really hard to make podcasts like this. It's a lot, a lot of work. It's a lot of revision. It's a lot of editing um, and engineering. Um, mm. But it's also, it's like, a, it's like a documentary. It's like a mini documentary mm -hmm. and can be super gratifying. So the idea here, do you have more to say? Mm -mm. is that we would just not go on and on and get right to your questions. So we've got a mic over here. Hi. Hi. Um, my question is mostly for you, Rebecca. Um, and it might be more of a general like reporting question, um, more so than about the specific story. But... Um, you guys were talking about how all the characters had a lot of stake in this story. Um, and for you, obviously, you were pushed out of your own apartment during the reporting. So I was kind of wondering, um, what did your personal relationship to the story, like how did that affect the way you reported? And like, did you have times when you kind of had to put like your feelings away um, or did that help your reporting process or just kind of like what was your relationship to the story? having like, while experiencing some of those things yourself? Thank you for your question. Um, again, and I did another panel earlier, um, I think it's not really the time to not be having feelings um, and, or opinions or uh, very, very fierce and lucid um, convictions about these sorts of stories. That said, you know, it's not my story you know, I, I felt like I had enough distance so that I could honor and give agency and platform to the stories that I was reporting. But in some, in many ways, you know, Monica and then, the, you know, the, um, the Williamsburg story and the young uh, woman, Corinne, who was growing up in, in like the black magical bed that's still preserved. And, you know, there were, I, the, I, I could feel compassion. I understood and that I thought was really actually helpful um, in the process of reporting. Does that answer your question? Yeah. 
Hi, my name is Randy. I'm from D.C. Um, and I'm wondering, is this something, is D.C. on your radar? Um, I'm sure you get this question all the time. So the, 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 thank you for your question. And there's, um, so we've been approached by a lot of folks. Um, and the question of it is, is this something we want to franchise? Um, and that just feels so counter to what we set out to do. That said, it, it is happening everywhere. And if there is a, a team of hardworking, talented, smart journalists and producers who want to give it their all and give it a shot. Um, and Karen has played a role, a very central role in, in the making. Um, you know, WMYC is producing on the back end of, of this one as well. And so it's, it's just, it's a lot of work. And it is, if, it, you know, for me to listen to the LA, um, I've only listened to one episode because I feel sort of a way about it um, because it was such a... Um, such a, a personal story for all of us as a team to do the first one and to, to kind of alight upon this idea. You know, I asked Terrence Blanchard, who I've known um, for years, he's a composer who scores all of Spike Lee's movies. I asked him to do that dun, 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 at the beginning, and it just gives mm -hmm. me goosebumps every time I hear it. Um, you know, I, the day that I came up with the title, There Goes the Neighborhood, I, you know, we were all like, yeah, that makes so much sense. You know, so there were all these kinds of little things. Um, and so it's just a matter of how to do it right if we're going to do it in other cities. Thank you. Yep. My question kind of pivots off of that. Uh, my name is Julia McAvoy. I'm at KQED in San Francisco, and we just finished a season called American Suburb which is about the flip side of gentrification. Where are the people from Oakland going while well, they're going out to the suburbs and then what happens in the culture clash there? So what I'm wondering about, we want to do a season two and we're heading off into that territory and it was very hard to do season one. I'm wondering how season one here informed how things got done in terms of process on season two. Was there any kind of handoff or sharing of information or were you guys just operating completely different zones with editorial input only at those rough mix stages. I'm curious about what was learned from one, what that was in terms of being passed on to two that helped two perhaps be a little easier? Really, really briefly, um, once, we, uh, once the staff had been organized, um, KCRW invited, uh, or WMYC said they wanted to come to LA and there was a, we had a three day workshop to line up uh, what the stories might would be, <laughs> and um, uh, Karen, who we've mentioned, and, and two or three other people from New York came in and participated deeply in that process. And so, no, this was before. before absolutely, it was. It was a. We did that, and and it was still winter, and we didn't really start for a few months after that. So it was really um, very. Extremely helpful, I think, for us to have that insight, and also I think for New York to feel like what we were doing was really connected and, and had some of the same intention. Yeah, and it was kind of bookended with a lot of involvement from WNYC. Kind of in that middle period, we were off on our own um, reporting, <laughs> reporting, and putting these pieces together and showing them to Celeste and our managing editor Sonia. And then at the end, um, Karen Frillman, the executive editor from WNYC, and Casey Means, engineer, um, flew out here for a couple days, and we went over the first couple episodes line by line with them. And, you know, as we've been pushing episodes towards actually being ready to go, Karen has really stepped in and been more of like a 
hands-on editor and you know it's and it's and it's great she's awesome so it's sort of so it was you know a lot of involvement and I think yeah. it's clear everybody you know wanted it to live up to season one um, hi, uh, my name is Amber, and I work with the diversity department at Sundance. Um, I just say that to preface that we work with a lot, um, like overcoming the stigma that a lot of communities don't believe that filmmaking is a viable option mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering, with your experience about kind of like engaging communities where like hmm. podcasting is a new like thing, and how to like best practices for um, getting them animated. Um, I think best practices for getting them involved or. Involved, In, like, yeah. yeah, following, feeling like, you know, um, they're going to be able to place they can trust. I think oftentimes it really is as simple as, you know, at, at our block party this year, I, ha I, brought, um, I brought kits for the kids on our block, and they went around and asked all the white people, what are you doing here? <laughs> they, they, really, they really did not miss a beat. Um, and just to, so to just give the tools and to say you have every right to go and ask these questions and to find out what's happening in your neighborhood. Um, I also did um, uh, curated live events um, that included characters from, mm -hmm. from the podcast, engaged with each other, um, engaged with the audience. Um, so I think you just, if you can find as many ways to build out from the podcast itself, because it is kind of rarefied in, for some folks, then that, then that makes it that much richer and accessible. Thank you. Hi, my name is Corey, and I'm actually also from San Francisco, but I grew up in LA, so I appreciate KCRW for, I might be dating myself, 30 plus years of, it's changed, but I'm still <laughs> listen to it. But anyway, um, my question actually is piggyback on her last one, is that how was your, the feedback, and how did you, because you mentioned this morning, Rebecca, about the events and things like that, and mm -hmm. I appreciate that you do state your values that you come with, because we all come with values, it's not like there are people on all sides that are good and have equal right. stakes, you know? So I don't agree with that. But so like, how do you stay true to those values? Because my work centers around health and education and that engagement. Say again what your work is? Health and education. Okay. So that engagement and feedback and sort of staying true to the values and the, the reality and the story at the same time is a balance. So I stay true to my values because not staying true to them feels crappy. That's sort of ultimately what it is. And, you know, I think a lot, I get asked, it, it's, a, it's a hell of a thing, you know, to spend your career. Um, and I've worked in, in television and publishing and film across genres, trying to center the conversation, the national conversation on race and understanding racism, and to then ha elect a white supremacist as president. I'm very, very busy. I'm very busy lately. But you know what? That's okay, because I've spent a lot of time building up to this moment where staying true to my values has served me well, and I'm, so I'm poised to, to just keep doing that. So, but, but ask these two, because there are different things at stake, and there are different, um, probably, approaches to how you sustain your values. Yeah, I mean, I do think, like, you know, that especially now in journalism, you know, I, I just think we are at a moment where there are certain things that we can agree are not really um, issues to be debated anymore. Do you know what I mean? Issues mm -hmm. of civil rights, issues of um, when we're talking about racism, I think it's okay to be really straightforward and kind of address those things head on. And um, 
call these things out for what they are. And, you know, that's different than sort of when you get into reporting on like a policy issue, for example, and, you know, what's the best housing policy to address this particular issue? What's the best way to create more affordable housing in L.A.? Like, that's a different kind of question than I think um, some of the more, yeah, fundamental, like, values-related questions, if that makes sense. It's kind of a little mushy, but... Yeah, I I mean, that's... I don't have much to add to what both of them said. Certain things, the conversations kind of move past, well, maybe this, maybe that. I mean, I do think that part of that question, and now I don't see where you have gone. Oh, yeah. Engaging the feedback. Yeah. Engaging the feedback. So, importantly, you know, events, live events or conversations are not should not be treated as one-offs. You know, the goal Mm. with all of the live events that I host or curate um, is is for people to put language into their brain and to bring it out of the room and into their communities. So with There Goes the Neighborhood, specifically, we had events where white folks who had moved into black neighborhoods would stand up and say, I don't know what it means to, what white privilege means. Um, and so I, to my response to that is, I can't allow you to leave this room until you understand what that means, or at least a little bit of what that means. That's the goal and the purpose. You know, again, it's, it, some of it is style. That's sort of who, what, how I do, you know. Um, it, it, other folks may engage differently. Some people are put off by, you know, the kind of just calling it what it is. Um, I, I don't, that's not my concern. You know, um, it's there's too, you know, as I said earlier at the other panel, there's just too much at stake. Thanks, guys. That was a um, my name is Sandy Dirks. I'm uh, the co-host um, and co-creator of American Suburb at KQED, which is also very much about race and place and space. But looking at those displaced from Oakland and San Francisco and Richmond and East Palo Alto and following them out to the suburbs where it becomes very quickly about race because these once white spaces do not want people who look different moving in and they have a very specific idea of what suburbia is. I'm talking to the point of watermelons broken on new residents. 2017, y'all. 2017. Um, And, and, you know, I... We looked a lot to There Goes the Neighborhood um, because it, it, is, it is, you know, these two sides of this coin as the sort of reverse white flight happens. Um, but I have a question about narrative and narrative arcs because I think that what you guys have done so interestingly is to tell these different narratives that are about this overall theme through these seasons. And I wanted to ask if there were any kind of, I know this is, this is something that we worked on very hard to try to tell individual stories of people about a, telling the story of a town in some ways, but also to weave them together to give this sort of larger mosaic. Um, and I'm wondering if there were any things that you sort of grappled with or places that you explored when you were learning to tell these multiple stories. So it's not a murder mystery, as you were saying. It's not, it, you don't have the kind of one event um, and how do you balance all of those narrative arcs as you work to put these many, many docs together? Ooh, that's a great question. Phew. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think it was really important for us to, um, to make sure that it sounded like Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, Kai and I both live in Brooklyn. So we sort of led that charge of, of figuring out how to get that right. Um, and then when, when the, the tenor is right, then the people who embody that tenor, they sort of, they sort of meld, coalesce 
um, in a way that sound that sounds right. And then there's editing, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and that's and and engineering. And um, uh, Anna mentioned Casey Means, who's our engineer, who's extraordinarily talented. Um, but yeah, it, it's not just finding and reporting and figuring out. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna structure this narrative this way. Then it's on the back end making it sing, making it pretty. Mm-hmm. Yes, and many, many, many drafts. <laughs> There's like no way around it because when you have so much tape, it's just the first version inevitably is this attempt to stuff all Everything the things in there it. that you think should be in there, and then with you know as much as you think you're considering story and pacing, you know inevitably for us anyway, perhaps, you know, some of you might be more streamlined, but the first version would be this bloated mess with, you know, little suspense. And then it would be this process of refining and kind of striking that balance between. Well, it's a little bit, a a little bit, you carve the, the, you, you carve the story out of, um, I mean, in so many ways, you look, you, you, you listen to your uh, audio you've recorded and you make notes. These are the things I want to use. Then you write around it. This is a story. Oh, that was a great thing that happened there. Let's add that. You know? And then, then you have to take away from it. And then once you've taken away from it, you know, it, it doesn't look like an arc anymore. It's like that. You know? So then you have to move everything around and get the right shape. And it's... it's uh, <laughs> It's a process that ends up having many steps. I would also I, add, as a, as a writer, as, you know, sort of by trade, more or less. I mean, I um, am a critic for the LA Times, and I write essays and op-eds and do, you know, on the page mostly. Um, the writing for radio is tough. I mean, if, if for I think for radio people, it's tough. But as somebody who came in as a non-radio mm-hmm. person... Um, learning how to write to radio was really, really hard. Yeah, and kind of knowing when to stop talking yourself yep. and let the other yep. person say it, mm-hmm. you know. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's... And the other thing that I thought a lot about on this project with the writing is that um, there is, a, you know, the voice of the podcast is a more intimate voice. It's more of a storytelling voice than a journalistic voice. And it's not, and this is, we're doing journalistic storytelling. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not that different, but you do want to be careful that you're not falling into journalistic jargon mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. writing or that you're not going on too long, but that you're, and then when you, your read is so crucial, mm-hmm. I think, in the podcast, because mostly people are listening to it by themselves and they need to feel like you're talking to them. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of always true, but it feels with us if you're asking somebody to listen to eight chapters of a story they need to feel that you were talking to them and and so thinking about that is another piece of the storytelling hi my name is Andrea Gutierrez I live here in LA um thank you so much for for the session and for the podcast um I actually live in Highland Park which for those who don't know is also kind of ground zero of gentrification has been for several years and is unfortunately kind of a foregone conclusion um and I've been witness to it since I've been living there and um my my so that was kind of my my entree into to the show and 
Um, I've only heard uh, the first episode of season two, or yeah, season two. Um, and I was telling my boyfriend the other day, I was like, oh, you should really listen to this because the building in it is right down the street from where his family lives. And he was like, oh yeah, my mom would really like that, but she mostly speaks Spanish. And so mm. she feels most comfortable in Spanish. And so I'm wondering, the, the, the first thought I knew when he said that was, was, is there a version in Spanish? Is there a transcript that's in Spanish? And thinking about other languages and other communities that it affects, because unfortunately, this not only is this great, compelling storytelling, it's also a public service. Mm-hmm. And and um, so many of the interviews are in Spanish. And I, I think I appreciate that it's it's in podcast and reporting. It's been getting better where you're not always have you don't always have someone who's interpreting right over the person speaking. Yeah. We do get a chance to hear Agreed. them speaking in Spanish because yeah. a lot of us speak it, not just people who are, cult, you know, it's part of the culture of the background. Um, but I'm wondering if that's something that has come up, if people are thinking about it, whether it's recording it in Spanish or even just offering, not just Spanish, uh, I can think of Korean, I can think of other Absolutely. communities in LA, right? Yeah. And yeah. if that's that's something that you're thinking about as far as, because I know like the New York Times, they often offer um, translations in a whole bunch of different languages for their articles. So um, I would love to see that, especially for our stations in LA that are, you know, and you guys already have a bilingual podcast. So um, yeah. <laughs> Suggestion, question, and same so, same one. So, um, public media, public radio, not a lot of resources to to sort of multi-translate. The other thing that I find, and I felt this in early drafts of the fir- of I don't know if it was the first or the second, was that I I, I hate hearing translators who aren't native to the language they're translating. Um, so, I feel like to do it right you know, you really want to spend some time and Mm -hmm. invest resources in finding Spanish speaking or Korean speaking or, you know, Hindu speaking or whatever, who really, who can engage in this kind of storytelling. Um, And unfortunately, you know, public media is really very white. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we definitely thought about it. I mean, I think um, we we had talked at one point about doing an episode in Spanish, um, which which we didn't do in the end. And I and I don't know no what the decision making yeah. process was, but like, but we definitely talked about having versions in Spanish. And I think in the end, it was a resources logistics question. But um, totally, absolutely, take your suggestion, and it would be great to have other versions. And we, for season two, especially with LA, we talked a lot yeah. about. Um, incorporating Spanish and, um, you know, I worked very closely with our producer, Miguel Contreras, um, for example, in episode two that you heard clips from. I mean, that was not like all me just going out, you know, doing this story. It was me and Miguel together and he is a fluent Spanish speaker and like we would not have gotten 98% of the interviews that we got probably without him. Um, and, And yeah, and then when we did do the translations in the episode, rather than have like someone do a voiceover over the speaker. We had Miguel just say like, you know, you would hear the person he'd say, yeah, she said, you know, she told me X, Y, Z. So anyway, definitely a huge consideration. Um, it would be really great to have fully mm-hmm. translated episodes. I will look to the higher ups at KCRW to, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's, yeah, a lot. It's a that's very, it's a good that's so much idea. more possible. It's a great idea. Yeah. One yeah. last question. Hi, I'm Beandria. Um, I wanted to say, sort of unrelated, but Rebecca, your book, Sugar in the Raw, is one of those books that, like, every time I 
Thank you. Every time I go through my books to give something away, I always am unwilling to part with that book, and I've had it since college, so like almost 20 years. I so appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, I, at the time, I was working on a, a group with teen girls in Philly public schools, and it was one of the few books that I could find that was actually black women's voices for them to read, like young girls their age for them to read. So, um, but I actually have a question about being a listener to this podcast. Um, I haven't listened to the LA part of it yet, but I'm, I'm curious about if you, as having the behind the scenes perspective, have any, any thoughts about why, um, what enabled the folks here in LA, um, the gentleman, Uber is his name? Yeah. Why they were able to, it sounded like, fight back pretty ably in ways that the folks in New York weren't. Um, and I don't know if that's a false equivalency, but I'm curious about that because at least I just moved to LA from DC and it seems like even though there are laws in the books and we think about New York as being a pro-tenant place, at least I do from the outside. I mean, in terms of like yeah. rent control existing and compared to what's out there, there seems to be more rights for people in New York than in other places. Maybe I'm wrong, um, but I'm just curious. It, it really struck me that the New Yorkers really were hit very hard and couldn't fight back against the forest where it sounds like these folks here are having some traction. I think part of that is because New York is really, is really about who you know. <laughs> um, everybody in the podcast ended up finding places through people mm-hmm. that they knew. Um, and that's sort of what New York is. Um, and, uh, I think that LA, and that's one of the interesting aspects of, of the, of the partnership is that it, 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 it's a company town. It works differently for, for LA, but I, I would just say that it's because in part it didn't occur, you know, and also I think Monica and Joshua felt like they were pushing back and fighting, but just, mm-hmm as individuals. Yeah, and I think this building that we focused on for this episode too, Uber's building was really unique because I met him at, um, it was, I think it was at Los Angeles Tenants Union meeting that they had organized with the housing department. So he just happened to be somebody that was already involved with tenants' rights organizations here in LA. And there was a little bit of backstory to the building that we didn't fit in the episode. Um, But the previous owner, there had been a family that had owned the building for many years, never raised the rent. And then there was an owner in between them and David. And that owner was also an investor who had also wanted the tenants out. Um, David, the current landlord, had actually worked for that owner as a (laughs) property manager. So the tenants kind of, you know, and that guy ended up selling it to David. So when David took over, the tenants were sort of primed for this fight. They kind of, you know, they, they knew what was going on and they um, were ready to fight to stay put right from the beginning. And because Uber was al- already an activist or kind of became one during the process of having that first landlord, he went around and organized the building very quickly. And, you know, and rent control or rent stabilization laws in L.A. are are pretty strong. I mean, it's, it is difficult to evict people unless you're going to take the, tear the building down or take it off the market somehow. And that's not what David was planning to do. So, um, so they were just able to organize really, really fast because of all that. And I think, um, that's not the case for a lot of tenants, even in LA, you know, just not knowing right off the bat what to do. You know, we talked to many other people that, um, 
we're in different situations because of that. It's like, did he do any research? You know, <laughs> like I heard what you said about he took out loans or whatever, but no one forced him to buy the building. Yeah, you know? I mean, and it seemed like if you found out about it, why couldn't he find out about yeah. it before he bought the building? That's yeah. a good question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he had he had done this with a building before, um, where he had bought it. It was a rent-controlled property, but he had paid everybody like twenty thousand dollars to leave, and they had all taken the deal, and and it worked out. So I think that. You know, for whatever reason, he, he just had faith that it would easy. work out again. Yeah. Of course he did. Yeah. Yeah. So you've now heard some of the secret parts of the second episode that didn't survive into the final draft. <laughs> I mean, I wanted that in there, but oh, was yeah. outvoted in the end. I'm like, it's so important for context. But of course, like Rebecca was saying, it is really good to have disagreements on the team because, I mean, this is a 20 minute episode that we're asking people to listen to. And so it was just a lot of. It was a lot of detail, but mm -hmm. it was sure interesting. Yeah. I think we're going to end on that note. Thank mm -hmm. you all for coming out. That's Celeste Wesson, Rebecca Carroll, and Anna Scott speaking at the 2017 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Annenberg Foundation. Event sponsors include Cole Hahn, Mac Cosmetics, and thirdlove.com.